The gospel for this fifth Sunday in the season of Advent comes from Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He, Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard of them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Something is happening today that will last 8 hours, 31 minutes, and 8 seconds, approximately. Any guesses? Ah, oh, yeah, that's right. It's depressing but true. Hours of daylight. That's it. Eight hours, 31 minutes, and eight seconds. We are making our way toward even less daylight, toward the shortest day of the year. We are just about there. By December 21st, we will have shaved off another six minutes or so of daylight. And we know this. It happens every year. It's not like it's a surprise. But it's still just so much dark and rain and gray and clouds, and cold, which turns into traffic, and mud, and flooding, and roof leaks. And that's for those of us fortunate enough to have cars, and jobs to drive to, and families and loved ones to chauffeur around, and homes with roofs. To be making your way through the dark, cold, wet winter without a safe place to stay <clears throat> is a whole other gargantuan task. Now, there are time-honored ways to cope with our Pacific Northwest winter. Traveling somewhere else is definitely among them, but not always an option. So there are things to do at home, too. Light some candles, find extra lamps, find extra blankets. Make sure that you are staying connected with people somehow, even just phone calls, so that <clears throat> the dark doesn't contribute to isolation. Even Seeing if an antidepressant medication might help. There's never any shame in that. You can probably tell that this sermon is inspired by last week, which felt extremely dark and depressing. And so during that week, I tried to think about what, if anything, could I see as a bonus, a benefit of our winter. And I do have to admit that as much as the dark and the gray and the rain can become oppressive, there is something about it I appreciate. And that's that on the few clear days that we will have between now and, you know, August, and especially <laughs> on that early spring day, not quite yet spring, but the sky is blue again, and there's a little hint of warmth in the air, and you're driving south on 405, and you come around this particular corner 
that's kind of north of Bothell, you will see Mount Rainier in all its glory after you have not seen it for lo these many months. And so it is an awe-inspiring sight every time. Wow, I think to myself, after having seen that mountain thousands of times in my life, wow, that is a mountain. <laughs> now, obviously, it's always there, but the dark and the gray and the clouds keep it hidden so often that the few sights of it we get are a continual delight. You don't take it for granted. It's a wonder, a source of awe, even joy. What makes you stop and say, wow? Maybe don't stop on 405 if you're looking at the mountain, right? <laughs> what gives you a moment of awe and wonder, a sense that you are in the presence of something that you do not understand, a mystery bigger and more powerful than you are? I think that's part of what the mountain is to me and to many of us. It's a thing of beauty, to be sure, but it also is a thing beyond our management. Someday, perhaps, probably, that mountain will erupt. And though it's likely that scientists will have given us much warning about it, a warning is still not control. To top it off, experienced climbers can tell you that the terrain of a mountain is nothing to be messed with. You better be prepared for just about anything if you hope to get to the top and back again, and even then. Even if you're experienced, it's a risk. Awe is something unique. It's more than appreciation. It's not quite all the way to being afraid. It's different than that. It's almost easier to experience, uh, describe the experience of things that give us awe than to describe what it feels like in us. And it can be brought on by a lot of things, big things like mountains and solar eclipses or hearing the last lingering fading notes of a symphony or visiting a glacier that will not be around too much longer. But it doesn't have to be big things. We just heard in our Old Testament reading, right, that Elijah encountered some big things, earthquakes and fires and whirlwinds, but God wasn't in the big things. God was in the small thing, the silence. Awe can come from small daily things, watching a child take those early stumbling steps, standing out on one of the few nights without clouds and looking up at the stars, learning that each human body, every single one of us, has in us 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Did you know that? Enough to circumscribe the globe more than twice every one of us. Awe can take us by surprise, can sneak up on us like a mountain around a corner when we're least expecting it. One psychologist describes awe as the feeling of being in the presence of something that transcends your understanding of the world. And part of the beauty of the experience of being in awe is that it is available for free to everyone. You don't need training or an education, a degree, or an expensive tool. Maybe the most beautiful aspect of allowing ourselves to be amazed is that it both grounds us in the world in that moment, 
gives us this deep connection to where we are and takes us completely outside of our own selves at the same time. Another teacher says that awe is the absence of self-preoccupation. It's a little break from our spinning, tired, frazzled, crabby brains. Awe is a communal experience. You can have it at the same time as someone else, a group of you standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, right? Wow, that's a big hole. (laughs) But it's also an individual experience. Every one of you is having that moment as an individual too. And you know there's somebody who's standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon but so busy taking a selfie they're not actually paying attention to the moment. I'm bringing all of this up canyons and mountains and stars and babies, because the gospel today is especially filled with awe and wonder. You might remember that Zechariah and Elizabeth, whom we met a few weeks ago, are deeply faithful Jews who have been serving their community for a long time, but have also lived with the mostly silent and unnoticed heartbreak of not being able to have the child that they have so long wanted. Until one day when an angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and told him that, yes, it's time. His wife, Elizabeth, who is getting on in years, is going to have this long-awaited baby. And Zechariah's job is to give this baby a brand new, not already on the family tree, name. Now, Zechariah doesn't quite know how to believe that. And so the angel tells him that until the baby is born, he will be unable to speak. He will only have to listen. It's sort of the ultimate sit there and think about what you've done experience. (laughs) And so nine months go by, give or take, until today, when Elizabeth has the baby, and it's time for him to be named, and everybody turns to Zechariah, asking him what the name will be. He can't say it, of course, so they give him a tablet, and he writes, his name is John. Exactly, by the way, what his wife had just said. We could have just stuck with her answer, but that's okay, right? And everyone in the room is amazed. This act of writing, doing something new, frees Zechariah's tongue. And so he's able to speak now, and everyone's amazement turns to fear. Within a a few short verses in the story, we have an emotional grab bag. We have amazement and fear and joy, and then we have wonder. As everyone at the end of this story is pondering, like, what is happening here? Who is this child going to become? Although underneath that, I suspect they're asking a different question, a bigger one. Who are we going to become because of this child? Scientists say that about a quarter of awe-inducing experiences are negative ones. That is, seeing a lion in a zoo and realizing that that would be dangerous if you took steps in the wrong direction. Or more commonly, watching news coverage, seeing photographs and images of human suffering, of war, and violence, and devastating losses. That's also a form of awe. 
It's got that tinge of fear in it. Because it also takes us out of ourselves to witness the suffering of another person. And there's a lot of that to go around. Even witnessing someone else's suffering, which is nowhere near the pain of living in it, can cause us such fear that we tip over into paralysis, shutting down, staying silent, because we are afraid. Maybe afraid such a thing could happen to us. Maybe afraid that we will say or do the wrong thing in the face of that suffering. I confess to you this has been a struggle for me in the last few months as a Christian, as we are all witnessing the deeply rooted and pervasive suffering and violence and struggle and injustice for so many in the Middle East. As a Christian, I want to be thoughtful when I speak about Judaism and Israel because I'm aware that my own tradition, our shared Christian tradition, has been the cause of most of the anti-Semitism in the world, in history and now. It's Christians who have fanned the flames of hatred against Jews, who have told lies that it was Jews who killed Jesus. And as Christians have participated in genocide, organized and created genocides against Jews more than once. That's just true. And so I grieve deeply with Israeli families who have lost loved ones to a terror attack and who are still worried about loved ones who are missing. And I grieve that anti-Semitism is on the rise here in Kirkland and in other places all over the world. At the same time, the loss of innocent life in Gaza, particularly children, cannot go unnamed. Since October 7th, one out of every 150 children in Gaza has been killed. If we applied that math, that equation to the United States, that would be half a million American children. As an American, I want to be thoughtful and careful when I speak about the people of the Middle East and North Africa, especially those who are Muslim, because I know that my own nation has not always treated Muslims well. Islamophobia is a real and continuing scourge among us, often entangled with anti-Semitism. More than one Palestinian-American has been attacked recently, even killed in this country because of hatred fanned by war in the Middle East. The people of Palestine deserve what we all deserve, a safe, secure place to live, a land to call home. But violent attacks against civilians are not the way to that. There are Christians in the Middle East, too. There are Lutherans in the Middle East, did you know? Not to mention those of other traditions, all beloved by God, all suffering, often not because of anything they have done, but because of decisions made far away in the halls of power. It makes us afraid, afraid of what else could happen, afraid there's nothing to be done, afraid it's just going to continue forever. And we should be afraid because we should fear anytime, anywhere, human life is devastated by war. Part of what I think the gospel is bringing us today is a story that shows us that fear can coexist with joy 
and awe and wonder. They're all mixed up together all the time. We don't need to get past fear in order to earn joy. And we don't need to quench joy in order to witness the suffering of others. We don't need to stop feeling awe because the world is full of pain. These things are all happening at the same time. And in some ways, they are doing the same thing. They are taking us out of ourselves, moving us out of our own preoccupation, reminding us of how deeply we are connected to all life everywhere, human and otherwise, in joy and in pain. Last week we heard about Mary and Elizabeth and how they form this deep connection to one another because they were able to come together and share this joy that they were each expecting a child. That joy was communal. Even the joy we experience as individuals, something good that happens to us, almost demands to be shared if we want to experience it in its fullness. And that's the same with awe and wonder and even the fear that comes on us when we watch other people suffer. It drives us in its best toward one another, takes us out of our own lives, and places us in this great, big, human circle of life where we remember that the stars shining at night are also shining over the children of Gaza. That the mountain we catch glimpses of every once in a while is just as visible to somebody wandering the streets without a home. That the delight of a child's first steps are a universal language and the sunrise is free and shows off to everybody, regardless of the balance in your checkbook. To allow ourselves to be in awe and wonder is to be close to God, the God who loves every one of us, every hair on our heads, who knows every suffering we experience. To allow ourselves awe and wonder and joy, not only, but especially in the face of great suffering, is to choose connection with this world, to love this world so that we can do something to make it better. And remember, too, that the awe and wonder in this story don't stop with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're really just getting started. We're on the edge. The symphony is warming up. The shepherds are about to head into the fields. The wise men are just about to look up in the sky. The tired, expectant parents are packing for their trip to the small town of Bethlehem, hoping that there will be a place for them to stay. There will be hurt and loss and struggle and suffering for all of them. The days will be dark and gray, and the night will seem to last forever. But eventually the sun will rise, and they'll turn a corner, and right there, right there will be a baby in a manger. The one we've seen a thousand times, but if we are paying attention, if we are quiet enough, if we allow it into our hearts, we might just say, wow, now that's our God. Amen.